This morning we'll read 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 1 through 25. And if you want to follow along in the Bibles there in your seats, that's page 249. Last week, David was saved from taking vengeance on a foolish Nabal, who in the end was struck down, and the result was David's marriage to Abigail. This week we pick up as David is back in the wilderness. Let us attend to what the Word says about what happens in the life of David as God shows himself to his people. Will the Spirit attend the reading of God's holy Word? Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lie Saul, asleep within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand and against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill, with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not kept over our watch over our Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. 
But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, we have read your word, listened to it. Lord, we desire to truly hear it that you, by your Spirit, may make it effective to the task that you have for us this morning. To be encouraged, to be convicted, to be taught and instructed, to be transformed as your word has its way with us. I pray, Lord, that I would be your servant in that task, that I would not stand in the way, that what I have to share with your people this morning would be led by your Spirit, and all that falls toward would quickly fade away. Be with us, we pray, according to your glory, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. There's a saying we have that we've borrowed from the French, déjà vu. It means already seen. It's used to describe that somewhat eerie feeling we get sometimes where we're in a situation and it feels like We've been in that situation before, though we know or at least believe we haven't. You may have a bit of a sense of deja vu this morning. Didn't we read recently a passage where David sneaks up close to Saul? Where he's within striking distance of Saul? Where instead of killing Saul, he takes something from Saul? Seems kind of familiar. In fact, some of the scholars that look on scripture with skepticism or follow what's called the school of higher criticism think that chapter 24 and chapter 26 are the same events they're just different versions there's a different flavor to them and that the editors made the mistake in thinking that they were two different events their skepticism over the similarity of the events despite them being distinct, leads them to overlook a number of differences in the text. But there's another way that we can use that term déjà vu. More like Groundhog Day. Where we feel like we are having the same day over and over again. The same struggles with our children. The same conversations or conflicts with our spouses, the familiar anger at our coworkers, the same temptations towards false comforts that rear their poisonous heads. Maybe even this week as you head into Thanksgiving, 
you wonder if this will be the same as all the other years where you will have the same conflict over who's going to make what and is that pie going to be burned again because mom won't listen to my encouragement is dad going to sit out there and do his thing is will it be different this year like the critical scholars that assume that chapter 24 and 26 are the same and can't be different. We often face similar circumstances and worry that it can't be different. We wonder whether we can change, whether circumstances are going to change. Are we stuck? Is there hope for growth, for change, for progress? If we pay attention, there are differences between chapter 24 and 26. Not just where the events take place, not just the items taken, a corner of Saul's robe versus a spear and a jug of water, but there's differences in what David says and does. There's differences in Saul's reactions. And if we pay attention to the text, we see that there is hope for change. Because there is a God who provides a way when things seem as if they cannot and will not change. For there is a God that is able and willing to change us, to change the world around us and to work change in others. As we read of this interaction between David and Saul, as David goes through a similar routine of what we saw in chapter 24, yet we see that God has been at work, is at work, to make things different. Our hope for change comes not in looking at ourselves, but looking at God. God's activity in the world, what we often call providence, God's activity in us to change us, what we often call sanctification, and God's help to see the world as it truly is, what we call wisdom. Because of God's provision of his action in the world, of his work in us, and his opening of our eyes to see the world around us more clearly, there is hope for change because God is at work. We see this at first as we see God active in the world. David is faced again with similar circumstances. The Ziphites who want to get in well with Saul let him know that David is in the area. Saul comes down with a big army that far outnumbers David. And faced again with such a large army, David decides to do some reconnaissance. He sends out some spies who confirm that Saul is there. Then he comes close so he can see the situation. And he sees how the camp is laid out, and it seems like a good layout. Saul is the king, he's the commander. And so he's protected. The whole camp of the army encircles Saul. But seeing how things are laid out, he invites first Ahimelech and Abishai, and it seems like Abishai is the more eager, so Ahimelech stays behind. But David and Abishai head in to get a closer look, and as they go in, they're able to keep going. There's no alarm, there's no guard, and they're able to get right up next to Saul. Abishai repeats a version of what David's men said back in the cave in chapter 24. God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Abishai is right. 
he's more right than he knows. Look at what verse 12 says. Though David and Abishai don't realize it, verse 12 says, So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. We're not sure if Saul's army was tired from a long march, if they had sampled too much strong Ziphite wine, or if God had acted directly to bring some form of supernatural sleep upon them. We don't know, but we also don't need to know. Because either way, God is showing his activity, his provision, to bring about his will for David, for Saul, and for all those that are involved. This is something that David seems to understand about God's activity to bring about his will, that God is living and active in the world. Abishai wants to strike Saul dead. He says, I'll strike him once. I won't strike him again. He's saying, I'm going to get it right the first time. David says, no. Why does he say no? Because he realizes that Saul will pay for his sins. That God will bring about the judgment and justice that is due to Saul. It might be through direct intervention. He might strike him like God did to Nabal, as we read about in chapter 25. He might die of old age, what we would call natural causes, or he might die in battle. David offers all three of those options, but the three options are the same to him. God will bring about what Saul deserves in God's time. God will deliver David from Saul, but this is not the appointed way. He is able to command Abishai to spare Saul's life because he knows God will intervene. And that is better than him taking things into his own hand. That this is his hope, which allows him to continue to go forward in righteousness, to live according to God's ways. We often find it hard to believe, though, that God is at work. It's often easy for us to think that God is uninterested, that God is unable, or that God is uncaring. It's often easier for us to find other explanations for things. In Matthew 12, Jesus heals a blind and a mute man. And for all the works of prophets and sorcerers and men that claim to be in touch with spiritual realities, nowhere in the ancient Near East, nowhere among Greeks or Romans or others, was there any accounting of a man who healed someone that was blind. And some people began to ask whether this might be the promised son of David. And the Pharisees said, no. He must be a servant of Beelzebul, that is, the prince of demons. Seeing a man who could not speak, who could not see, suddenly be able to speak and be able to see, it was easier for them to say, it must have been demons. He must do his power by demons than to believe that God was living and active in the world to bring about healing and change and good news. And since that day, we have only grown more focused on human ability, on human knowledge. And therefore, we are less likely to believe that the things we experience around us have any connection to God. One writer by the name of Paul Gould writes, 
the post-Christian world we inhabit today presents us with a mundane and disenchanted view of reality. Under the sway of materialism and science, we have been left with a way of seeing, thinking, and living that has no place for beauty and wonder. We now live in a world bereft of magic and mystery. Many, including many Christians, no longer perceive the world in its proper light. Less and less we see the healing of sickness. The coming together of a couple, the birth of a child, as the result of a God who is active in this world that he has made. But the more and more we live in this way, the more and more we live as if it's all on us, whose sinful patterns lead us into the same patterns of deception, of destruction, war, and sorrow. Is it any wonder that for all of our technology, for all of our connectivity, for all of our medical science, for all of our mental therapeutic practices, that as we put all the weight on ourselves, that we struggle with so much anxiety, fear, and despair. Because if it's all on us, what hope is there to truly change things? This is not the story of the Bible. God is not a clockmaker who just winds the world up and says, we'll let it go. Nor does he hand the world to us like a bunch of Legos and says, it's yours to make of it what you want. No, he is a creator who is intimately connected to maintaining this world by the word of his power, who we read in Christ holds all things together, who keeps it from spinning into complete destruction despite our sin and our evil and our wickedness and who tends to his people as a loving father, correcting and instructing, keeping us from our worst tendencies. As we are getting ready to celebrate again in just a few weeks at Christmas, God is not inactive, God is not distant, but he has entered this very world, taking on human flesh for the ultimate deliverance of us. Our hope is in a God who acts and acts in this world. It's a simple thing, though, to say God is active in this world. To say that God answers prayers, that he cares. It can be another thing to live that way. But when we pray, when we read scripture, we begin to look and see and have a lens by which we might recognize that God is at work. And then we are better ready to give praise and thanksgiving to God, to give testimony to how God has answered our prayers, how we see the world through what he is doing. And then as we are attuned to what he is doing, we are then better able to trust him in the future. And this not only offers us hope, but hope for others. David is able to trust that God will act because he has seen him act and he is able then to assure Abishai. As we see that God is active in the world, it gives us hope that what has happened in the past is not the way that it always has to be. God is at work in the world and he's also at work in us. When God calls us to himself, he not only saves us from our sins, but as we talked with the kids, he saves us to himself, which means he sanctifies us. That is, he helps us increase in holiness. 
Last time, in chapter 24, David was within inches of Saul, exposed in a cave. And what did he do? He took a, a knife, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe with the ill intent of at least embarrassing him, and his heart was interested in violence until he was convicted. It seems like he had planned to kill Saul before he felt conviction. We don't read that here in chapter 26. Here, Abishai is the one with violent intentions. He's the one hoping to deliver his beloved leader, David, and his fellow men from conflict by striking Saul down. But David intercedes. David instructs him against it, himself having no such intention of killing Saul. We don't know David's heart fully. The text doesn't say everything, but as we look between chapter 24 and chapter 6, the differences in the text indicate that there is no conviction of his heart. There is no reproach for a desire to kill Saul, as in chapter 24, there is only an interest in protecting the Lord's anointed. David has grown. His intention in the camp is strategic, not vindictive. His intention is to continue to obey. Now, stopping here, we might need to acknowledge one of our biggest struggles as Christians sometimes can, can be the repeated output of restraint, of self-control in the face of ongoing temptation or struggle. That is, when we meet with similar situations of trial or temptation, we may say, I've done this before. I'm tired. I'm tired of doing this every day. I'm tired of saying no to this. Or I'm tired of saying, yes, I will do that again. We don't want to keep going, and we might be said, I've done enough. This time I'm done. It was Saul continuing to pursue David over and over again. You can understand why David might grow tired. And yet, one of our hopes that God is active in the world and in us is that he transforms us so that when we face those similar situations, we have a greater reserve of strength and resistance in us because it's not our strength we're relying on, it's God's. One of the ways God acts in us is to give us the fruit of the Spirit, such as patience and self-control that helps us to choose the right over and over again. If we believe that it is just our own willpower that resists evil, then we will eventually reach the end of our limits and give up and give in. But if we believe God acts within us to grow our love for holiness and obedience, then we can keep saying no to what is right. We can keep saying yes, excuse me, saying no to what is wrong and yes to what is right. This was Paul's encouragement to the church of Galatia when he writes in Galatians 6, 9, to not grow weary in doing good. It was such a good and important idea that he repeated it to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, 13. Do not grow weary in doing good. If we trust God is active, and active in us, then what Paul writes in Philippians 1, 6 is true for us. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If that's true, then we can keep going forward with hope 
to do what is right over and over again, that God might not only help us do what is right, but desire what is right. As David is engaging Saul, one of his chief concerns is this, that because of this tension, because he is being pursued, is what he is missing out on. He said, if the Lord has been stirred up by God, then, then I'll offer a sacrifice. But if men, may they be cursed, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea. Whereas David's concern before was his life, and him doing what was right in terms of not striking Saul. And he was celebrating that his hand had been restrained from that. What David's chief concern now in chapter 26 is that this ongoing conflict is resulting in him not enjoying the gift of God's promised land among God's covenant people. That is not primarily the fear of his life, but the fear of being excluded from the blessing of knowing and serving God among his people. Not only does God work in David's heart to encourage him to continue in obedience, but continues to conform his heart to desire what is truest and best, the enjoyment of God himself among his people, among the place of promise. And we need to acknowledge that the line of sanctification is not always just a steady incline. We often expect it to be that way, and so we can be discouraged. It's often a spiral. We, we start to make progress, and then we move backwards. And we start to make progress, and we move backwards. Two or three steps forward, one step back. Last week in chapter 25, David said, strap on your swords. We're going to go kill Nabal, and we're going to kill all of the men. That's more than one step backwards. I say it's almost back all the way to square one. But God has not given up working in David's life. And so now, when there is an opportunity to strike down Saul, not only does he resist it, but he seeks the good, and the highest good that he desires is to serve the Lord in the place that God promised among God's promised people. He hopes that Saul will be honest. In verse 19, when he says, if this God has stirred you up to this, then I will offer a sacrifice. If men have stirred you up to this, then I hope that they are cursed. But even as he says that, hoping to convict Saul... He is showing an understanding of who God is, that God is faithful to convict, that God is faithful to discipline, and also that God offers grace. He offers sacrifice as a means to restoration. And lastly, as he confronts Saul with the fact that he spared his life, David says this, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed Whereas David has told Abishai that the God will surely strike the man who takes his hand against the Lord's anointed, and that it was fear of judgment in chapter 24 that withstrained his hand, now here it is the delight in faithfulness and obedience. It is the desire to bring pleasure to God and an understanding of God's blessed disposition towards those who are faithful that encourages him. We don't have to be who we were in the past. We are not bound to the same sins, to the same temptations, 
for all of our lives. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. God works to make us more like him, purifying our acts, purifying our motives, replacing our ill desires with what is good, so that we would be conformed more and more after the image of his son, so that we will one day be presented to him perfect, spotless, without blemish. Change and progress and growth are outcomes that we can hope for because God is at work in the world. He is living and active, that the world is not in control, and because he works in us. And if God is present in the world and God is present in us, then it means we are enabled to interact with the world in new ways, to grow, to not have to repeat the same patterns over and over. Not only does God work to make us more righteous, but to make us wiser too. God helps us to see the world the way it is and therefore to live in it accordingly in wisdom. We see that David has been blessed with military prowess in the past. He defeated the Philistines over and over again. But oftentimes we don't have the details of those battles. We just know that he was victorious. But now maybe we have here a, a better picture of his military understanding. We don't know what David expected as he approached the camp at night whether he was just going to gain as much information as he could before the alarm was raised and they escaped. But the text tells us that he had seen where Saul was and saw the challenges before him. But when he is given success, he takes the chance. And what does he take? He takes the spear, which is the sign of Saul's military power and his rule, and he takes the water the sign of his provision. Then what does he do? Here again, there is another difference between chapter 24, when he takes the corner of Saul's robe, and chapter 26. In chapter 24, David goes out after Saul and calls out to Saul. David and Abishai go to a safe distance away, and they call out, but they don't call out to Saul. They call out to Abner and the soldiers. Why? I think the reasons are twofold. First, David was cast out from the very same position as Abner. He was the chief bodyguard. He was the chief military man among God's people. Abner has replaced David. He is pointing out the injustice of that action. One form of wisdom that God gives us is to understand that the way fools learn things. And as you read through the book of Proverbs, you begin to see that fools typically don't learn by you saying, here's the foolish thing you did. They need to be shown it, or better yet, to be shown it at a slant, to be able to say, mm, that is foolish, before they realize they themselves are on the hook. And to see the foolishness of putting Abner in charge, who has let him down, who has committed a capital offense by letting an enemy get within a hand's breadth of the king, is to show the injustice and foolishness of what Saul has done. What did I ever do to you, Saul? Did I ever endanger your life? 
Did I ever fall asleep on the job? Did I ever expose you to danger? No, we know the testimony that David was a faithful servant of Saul. And yet he is being pursued to be put to death when Abner, he deserves death. So David is speaking to Saul. You rejected me. You replaced me. See what you've done to me. The second reason is probably morale. If the prowess of David is such that he can sneak into their camp and he can go right up to the king who is encircled by the whole army and he can take the spear as a sign of his power and he can take the pitcher, which is a sign of their provision, and come out unscathed, then either God is so with David or David is such a military man of wisdom and power and intellect as a strategist, who would want to fight him? Then he expresses wisdom directly to Saul. Again, it's similar to chapter 24. He is humble. He calls himself a flea. And Saul admits his failure and his fault. He says, I've sinned. It's a similar interaction, but there are some differences. Note what Saul says. He says, return to me, David. What does David do with that invitation? Does he run into Saul's open, outstretched arms? No, he says, uh, no. How about you send someone to get the spear? Instead of David and Abishai walking into the military encampment on their own, just send someone out to gather the spear. David doesn't return because he understands that he can't trust Saul. And even as he is talking about God rewarding faithfulness and obedience, what does he say? For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of you, Saul. No, in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David has learned that he can do the right thing every time. He can be gracious and merciful. He can be steadfast in righteousness, and that will not change the heart of Saul who is intent on wickedness. And even if Saul is honest in his expression of repentance. There is yet to be the fruit of repentance that indicates real change. David doesn't entrust himself to Saul. He entrusts himself to the Lord. It seems to be the right action because in chapter 24, after the speech and the interaction, Saul says, you're going to be a great king. Make a covenant with me that when you're king, you will spare my children and not blot out my name. Here he just says, you're going to do some great things. I hope you're blessed. It's just a perfunctory, formulaic blessing. David is merciful and obedient to God, but his hope is not that he can change Saul. His hope is that God might work. But he knows the reality of sin. He knows the reality of self-deception, of empty words and surface repentance. He shows wisdom and discernment about how the way the world works. And this is true wisdom. Not that we gain enough knowledge that we can be in control of everything. That's the wisdom of the world. Get enough information, get enough education, get enough wealth and power, and then you can change the world to make it the place that it should be. I know most of you are 
not on Twitter, but I think the richest man in the world gaining power of Twitter shows that all the power and all the wealth doesn't mean you fix things. No, true wisdom knows our limits and the true nature of sin and trust in God for what is beyond us. It means that we offer grace and forgiveness, but it doesn't mean we subject ourselves endlessly to those who mean us harm. It means we don't restore pastors and leaders who offer mere words of repentance until there is the fruit of repentance. Jesus was wise beyond any other human being, and yet John 2 tells us he did not entrust himself to men. Why? Because he knew the hearts of men. He told his disciples that he sent them out to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Why? Because there were men intent on harming them and putting them in jail and beating them and torturing them. If we have been unwise in the past, if we have been hurt in the past, if we have walked into danger unawares, if we keep making mistake after mistake, there is hope that we don't have to do it in the future. There is hope that our blind spots can be revealed, that our ignorance can be educated, that our eyes can be opened, not according to man's wisdom, but God showing us the way the world is because it's his world and he knows us best of all. God is active in the world. He's active in us to make us grow in holiness and to show us the world so that we can walk in it wisely. He shows us the reality of sin in us and others so that we cannot can save ourselves, but we will entrust our salvation and the salvation and change of others to him. In the Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes is locked up in prison for a crime he did not commit. And after six years, he is in despair and about to take his life. When he hears a noise, and it's revealed to him that he's not alone in the prison, he meets Abbe Farah, who has dug into his cell. And with the realization that Farah can break into his cell, that he can dig a tunnel into Dante's cell, then there is, begins to be hope. Hope that if the abbot can break in, then he can break out. Our hope of breaking out of our ruts, the same old reactions, the same bad decisions, the same sins, is that God has entered into this world, is active in this world, is active in us, and will, if we follow his guidance, show us how to live in this world until he comes again to make all things new. Whether it's by showing his power in miracles and signs, whether it is showing the pattern of human sin, whether it's in Jesus obeying perfectly and instructing with all wisdom and authority so that the pattern of sin, death, and destruction could be forever broken, we see that God is at work. And that means that there's hope. Much this week might be the same. I imagine some of the temptations are going to be the same. Some of the challenges are going to be the same. Work is going to be the same. Maybe even Thanksgiving will be just like last year. But there is a God who is active in the world. 
who sent his son into the world so that the world does not have to have the last word about what we can or cannot do, but God can take us, make us his, and hold us that we can change and grow in this world until he comes and makes all things new. We can trust that our hope is not in us breaking the cycle, but the God who breaks in and rebuilds us toward the good and the glorious. Let's pray. Gracious God, there is much to fear in the world because there is evil, because there is deception, because there are sins that would enslave us, there is addiction, these things are real, but greater are you that is in us than those things that are in the world. There is hope for change. Will we cling to Jesus, the absolute demonstration of your inbreaking power, as we seek to do what is right and what is wise and what is good for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.